Mrs. Ferrers died on the night of the 16th-17th September, a Thursday. I was sent for at eight o'clock on the morning of Friday the 17th. There was nothing to be done. She had been dead some hours. It was just a few minutes after nine when I reached home once more. I opened the front door with my latch-key, and purposely delayed for a few moments in the hall, hanging up my hat and the light overcoat that I had deemed a wise precaution against the chill of an early autumn morning. To tell the truth, I was considerably upset and worried. I am not going to pretend that at that moment I foresaw the events of the next few weeks. I emphatically did not do so. But my instinct told me that there were stirring times ahead. From the dining-room on my left there came the rattle of teacups and the short, dry cough of my sister Caroline. "'Is that you, James?' she called. An unnecessary question, since who else could it be? To tell the truth, it was precisely my sister Caroline who was the cause of my few minutes' delay. The motto of the Mongoose family, so Mr. Kipling tells us, is, "'Go and find out.' If Caroline ever adopts a crest, I should certainly suggest a mongoose rampant. One might omit the first part of the motto, Caroline can do any amount of finding out by sitting placidly at home. I don't know how she manages it, but there it is. I suspect that the servants and the tradesmen constitute her intelligence core. When she goes out, it is not to gather information, but to spread it. At that, too, she is amazingly expert. It was really this last-named trait of hers which was causing me these pangs of indecision. Whatever I told Caroline now concerning the demise of Mrs. Ferrers would be common knowledge all over the village within the space of an hour and a half. As a professional man, I naturally aim at discretion. Therefore I have got into the habit of continually withholding all information possible from my sister. She usually finds out just the same, but I have the moral satisfaction of knowing that I am in no way to blame. Mrs. Ferrer's husband died just over a year ago, and Caroline has constantly asserted, without the least foundation for the assertion, that his wife poisoned him. She scorns my invariable rejoinder that Mr. Ferrer's died of acute gastritis, helped on by habitual overindulgence in alcoholic beverages. The symptoms of gastritis and arsenical poisoning are not, I agree, unlike, but Caroline bases her accusation on quite different lines. "'You've only got to look at her,' I have heard her say. Mrs. Ferrers, though not in her first youth, was a very attractive woman, and her clothes, though simple, always seemed to fit her very well. But all the same, lots of women buy their clothes in Paris, and have not on that account necessarily poisoned their husbands. As I stood hesitating in the hall, with all this passing through my mind, Caroline's voice came again with a sharper note in it. "'What on earth are you doing out there, James? Why didn't you come and get your breakfast?' "'Just coming, my dear,' I said hastily. I've been hanging up my overcoat. You could have hung up half a dozen overcoats in this time. She was quite right. I could have. I walked into the dining room, gave Caroline the accustomed peck on the cheek, and sat down to eggs and bacon. The bacon was rather cold. You've had an early call, remarked Caroline. Yes, I said. King's Paddock. Mrs. Ferrers. I know, said my sister. How do you know? Annie told me. Annie is the house parlour-maid, a nice girl, but an inveterate talker. There was a pause. I continued to eat eggs and bacon. My sister's nose, which is long and thin, quivered a little at the tip, as it always does when she is interested or excited over anything. Well? she demanded. 
A sad business. Nothing to be done. Must have died in her sleep. I know, said my sister again. This time I was annoyed. You can't know, I snapped. I didn't know myself until I got there, and haven't mentioned it to a soul yet. If that girl Annie knows, she must be a clairvoyant. It wasn't Annie who told me. It was the milkman. He had it from the Ferris's cook. As I say, there is no need for Caroline to go out to get information. She sits at home, and it comes to her. My sister continued, What did she die of? Heart failure? Didn't the milkman tell you that? I inquired sarcastically. Sarcasm is wasted on Caroline. She takes it seriously, and answers accordingly. He didn't know, she explained. After all, Caroline was bound to hear sooner or later. She might as well hear from me. She died of an overdose of veronal. She's been taking it lately for sleeplessness. Must have taken too much. Nonsense, said Caroline immediately. She took it on purpose. Don't tell me. It is odd, when you have a secret belief of your own, which you do not wish to acknowledge. The voicing of it by someone else will rouse you to a fury of denial. I burst immediately into an indignant speech. There you go again, I said, rushing along without rhyme or reason. Why on earth should Mrs. Ferrers wish to commit suicide? A widow? Fairly young still, very well off, good health, and nothing to do but enjoy life. It's absurd. Not at all. Even you must have noticed how different she's been looking lately. It's been coming on for the last six months. She's looked positively hag-ridden, and you have just admitted that she hasn't been able to sleep. What is your diagnosis? I demanded coldly. An unfortunate love affair, I suppose. My sister shook her head. Remorse, she said with great gusto. Remorse? Yes. You never would believe me when I told you she poisoned her husband. I'm more than ever convinced of it now. I don't think you're very logical, I objected. Surely if a woman committed a crime like murder, she'd be sufficiently cold-blooded to enjoy the fruits of it without any weak-minded sentimentality, such as repentance. Caroline shook her head. There probably are women like that, but Mrs. Ferrers wasn't one of them. She was a mass of nerves. An overmastering impulse drove her on to get rid of her husband because she was the sort of person who simply can't endure suffering of any kind. And there's no doubt that the wife of a man like Ashley Ferrers must have had to suffer a good deal. I nodded. And ever since, she's been haunted by what she did. I can't help feeling sorry for her. I don't think Caroline ever felt sorry for Mrs. Ferrers whilst she was alive. Now that she is gone, where, presumably, Paris frocks can no longer be worn, Caroline is prepared to indulge in the softer emotions of pity and comprehension. I told her firmly that her whole idea was nonsense. I was all the more firm because I secretly agreed with some part at least of what she had said. But it is all wrong that Caroline should arrive at the truth simply by a kind of inspired guesswork. I wasn't going to encourage that sort of thing. She will go round the village airing her views, and everyone will think that she is doing so on medical data supplied by me. Life is very trying. Nonsense, said Caroline, in reply to my strictures. You'll see, ten to one, she's left a letter confessing everything. She didn't leave a letter of any kind, I said sharply, and not seeing where the admission was going to land me. Oh, said Caroline, so you did inquire about that, did you? I believe, James, that in your heart of hearts you think very much as I do. You're a precious old humbug. One always has to take the possibility of suicide into consideration, I said impressively. Will there be an inquest? There may be. It all depends. If I am able to declare myself absolutely satisfied that the overdose was taken accidentally, an inquest might be dispensed with. And are you absolutely satisfied? asked my sister shrewdly. I did not answer, but got up from the table.
Chapter 2 Who's Who in King's Abbot Before I proceed any further with what I said to Caroline and what Caroline said to me, it might be as well to give some idea of what I should describe as our local geography. Our village, King's Abbot, is, I imagine, very much like any other village. Our big town is Cranchester, nine miles away. We have a large railway station, a small post office, and two rival general stores. Able-bodied men are apt to leave the place early in life, but we are rich in unmarried ladies and retired military officers. Our hobbies and recreations can be summed up in the one word, gossip. There are only two houses of any importance in King's Abbot. One is King's Paddock, left to Mrs. Ferrers by her late husband. The other, Fernley Park, is owned by Roger Ackroyd. Ackroyd has always interested me by being a man more impossibly like a country squire than any country squire could really be. He reminds one of the red-faced sportsman who always appeared early in the first act of an old-fashioned musical comedy, the setting being the village green. They usually sang a song about going up to London. Nowadays we have reviews and the country squire has died out of musical fashion. Of course, Ackroyd is not really a country squire. He is an immensely successful manufacturer of, I think, wagon wheels. He is a man of nearly fifty years of age, rubicund of face, and genial of manner. He is hand in glove with the vicar, subscribes liberally to parish funds, though rumour has it that he is extremely mean in personal expenditure, encourages cricket matches, lads' clubs, and disabled soldiers' institutes. He is, in fact, the life and soul of our peaceful village of King's Abbot. Now, when Roger Ackroyd was a lad of twenty-one, he fell in love with and married a beautiful woman some five or six years his senior. Her name was Peyton, and she was a widow with one child. The history of the marriage was short and painful. To put it bluntly, Mrs. Ackroyd was a dipsomaniac. She succeeded in drinking herself into her grave four years after her marriage. In the years that followed, Ackroyd showed no disposition to make a second matrimonial adventure. His wife's child by her first marriage was only seven years old when his mother died. He is now twenty-five. Ackroyd has always regarded him as his own son, and has brought him up accordingly. But he has been a wild lad and a continual source of worry and trouble to his stepfather. Nevertheless, we are all very fond of Ralph Payton in King's Abbot. He is such a good-looking youngster, for one thing. As I said before, we are ready enough to gossip in our village— Everybody noticed from the first that Ackroyd and Mrs. Ferrers got on very well together. After her husband's death, the intimacy became more marked. They were always seen about together, and it was freely conjectured that at the end of her period of mourning, Mrs. Ferrers would become Mrs. Roger Ackroyd. It was felt, indeed, that there was a certain fitness in the thing. Roger Ackroyd's wife had admittedly died of drink. Ashley Ferrers had been a drunkard for many years before his death, it was only fitting that these two victims of alcoholic excess should make up to each other for all that they had previously endured at the hands of their former spouses.'